The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. Hey, it's Jesse. So I came out to my parents in the car. I was in the back seat on my way home from college. My dad was driving his hands on the wheel at 10 and 2. My mom was sitting in the passenger side, and I remember that she just she started to cry, 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 cry. And then she said, hey, you know, I think your cousin Charlie's gay because he's really emotional. My cousin Charlie was 11 at the time. But then she said, hey, Jesse, I love you so much. And I wasn't expecting this, and I don't know how to react, but we're going to figure it out. Well, my father said nothing. The next morning, he comes into the kitchen, and I'm eating the cereal we ate a lot in the 90s called Grape Nuts. Maybe you remember it. And my dad pours himself a bowl, and he says, hey, you know, I thought I was gay once, too. And I looked at him, and my jaw dropped. And I said, really, Dad? What did you do? And he paused. And he said, well, you know, I married your mom. And then he walked out the door, took his briefcase, went to work. Well, I was floored. It was the first moment that I realized that my dad, who had until then just been a lawyer living in the suburbs, raising three kids with my mother, perhaps was another person as well. Not long after I came out of the closet as gay, my father came out as gay, my sister came out as bisexual, my brother came out as transgender, and my mother came out as a survivor of a series of crimes so heinous to learn about that it only came out in dribs and drabs over many years. During the pandemic, I had the opportunity to reflect on that experience, and I wrote a book, a memoir a way to try to encapsulate and figure out what all of that outing meant for my family. And if I did my job right, I hope it's also just a really great read. The book is called The Family Outing. And this week, as we mark not just Memorial Day, a holiday, but also later this week, the start to Pride, one of my favorite months of the year, I thought it would be great to go back to a conversation I had with Leah Smart last fall about the book. We really get into what it means to come out, what it meant for every member of my family to come out, and why it's important. Now, Pride is one of my favorite holidays every year, and I like to celebrate every day in June. That's 30. It's a time to mark the progress we've made, to connect to the ways that the queer community is really unique. We have historically been pretty wonderful at allowing each other the space to occupy really different, unique identities, and also leaning in to support each other in that. But this year, well, this year just feels really different because this year, it just feels like the queer community, particularly the trans members of our community, are under attack. There is a wave of anti-trans legislation rolling out in more than 30 states right now. And it won't stop there. If there's ever a time to center trans voices in our community, it is now. To center queer voices in our community, it is now. I'm really excited for the conversations we're going to have this month. And I hope you enjoyed today's archive episode on coming out. Have a wonderful week and we'll see you next Monday. From the news team at LinkedIn... I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday. In March of 2020, when quarantine descended, I was living in Brooklyn, New York, with my wife, Frances, and our baby. We packed up our car and drove 18 hours south to her parents' home in Mississippi, where we took up residence in an upstairs bedroom. For those first couple weeks, I was really social. Zoom cocktail hours and Zoom yoga... But as I grew more depressed, tired, all that socializing went away. The only people I talked to every day were my family. My mom, my dad, my sister Katya, and my brother Evan. 
quarantining in five different homes in four different states. Really, I think we talked every single day. This closeness isn't something I would have anticipated for most of my life. Growing up, my family was tough. Everyone struggled in all kinds of ways. Then 20 years ago, like a chain reaction that can't stop once it's begun, we all came out. I was first. I came out as gay. Three years later, my dad did too. Then my sister announced she was bisexual. My brother told us he was transgender. And my mom, she came out as a survivor of a series of heinous crimes. In the quiet hours of the pandemic, with time to reflect, I began to wonder, what did coming out do for us? So I asked if I could interview everyone, mom, dad, Katya, and Evan, talk to everyone about coming out and try to tell our story. Mom was first to say yes. Dad and Evan followed. Katya took her time to think about it, about what it might be like to have her story told through my perspective for all of you. But eventually she said yes too. This week, our story finally comes out, pun entirely intended. It's called The Family Outing, and it's published by Harper One, a division of HarperCollins. And today, I'm going to flip the script for our show. I'm going to sit in the guest chair. My colleague and my friend, Leah Smart, she's the power voice behind our sister podcast, In the Arena. She's going to host the rest of this episode, and I'm so grateful. So, hey, Leah. Hey, Jesse. It's so good to be here, and I love that I get to get you on the other side of the mic, finally. (laughs) It's pretty awesome, and I'm just going to say a tiny bit uncomfortable. (laughs) Okay, first and foremost, I think I've seen you multiple times this week and just told you, I'm obsessed with your book, and I was like, it's getting a little creepy, but... (laughs) (laughs) I did close the book, and when I closed the book, I think I said, wow, like 10 times. Thank you. That means, I mean, it means so much to me, Leah. It really, it means so much to me. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, and we're going to talk all about the book today. It was beautifully written. You know, it's funny, we're both sitting here and I'm holding my version and you're holding your version. (laughs) Mine looks like I've owned it for 45 years and there are so many pages folded and notes and yours is the gorgeous hardcover. Um, I want to ask you, like, I, I didn't even really realize what the book was about. And then I got it. And I, of course, laughed once I once you told me it was about how would you come up with the family outing? I love that you think that I came up with the title. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, this book told me what it was. And I I mean that it kind of came out in full form, starting with the title. I have this really wonderful commercial literary agent and I depend on her And truthfully, I'm a little scared of her because when she rolls up her sleeves, you just kind of have to get out of her way. And she has a golden gut. And she was the one who, the first time I went to talk to her, I really wanted to write a book about tech. It is not an exaggeration to say that I love thinking and talking about tech and humanity and the way the two play together. And I went on and on about all of my ideas. And I sat back and she said, oh, I think you should write a story about your family. And I think it should be called The Family Outing. Um, And I said, well, that wasn't on my list. I think that sounds terrifying to write a memoir. No one wants to know that much about my family anyways. It was probably four years ago now, Leah. Um, But here we are. Here we are. Uh, This is the second time you and I have sat down together and I've interviewed you. And the last interview was two years ago, almost to the date. Um, And you had just started writing your book in June. And so you were talking about how you had just started this project of writing this book that was a memoir. And I've sort of been able to follow you through this process of doing what every writer wants to do, which is go away to the middle of nowhere and hope that you get your book written and it just comes out. (laughs) (laughs) And then you have this romantic night by the fire where you feel like you've completed it, which we all know now this is is true. Uh, But you've been through the multiple iterations of writing your book, of editing your book, of going through this process as a writer writing your first book. And having it be a memoir that is not connected to what you said you focus on, tech and humanity. What's that like? I want to go back and say that writing to me is like bricklaying in that it it is work. And some people are talented at it, but talent alone doesn't get you anything. And no matter who you are, you can get better at it if you practice. And you can't shortchange it. 
And so, you know, this book actually starts 20 years ago when I decided I wanted to become a writer. And if you had read anything that I wrote 20 years ago, you would doubt that I would ever be capable of writing anything like this. But I practiced as a magazine writer. I practiced structure and character development and how you think about big topics and then how you convey your ideas to others. And for the writing of the book itself, there were a couple of like wonderful moments. Like there was this one moment when my wife stayed home with our then two-year-old and brand new baby, and I went off to a the equivalent of a cabin in the woods for five days. Wonderfully romantic. <laughs> Most of it was not like that. Most of this book happened for two reasons. One is I hired a coach, and I am such a believer in coaches, particularly when you yourself set the goal and know what you're looking for in your relationship with the coach. And I knew that I needed somebody else to help me set deadlines and then stay on them. And then the second thing uh, that made this book turn from an idea in my head into the thing that you are holding right now is that I just put the time against it. I woke up every morning at 5, and I wrote from 5 to 7. I did that five days a week, uh, and I didn't miss it. And just sitting down at the table and putting the time against it with somebody else who's giving you light direction as to what to produce, that's like 85% of the battle of writing a book. So let's talk about the book. When I finished, I started uh, writing down the emergent themes. And as you know, because you've known me, I am uh, deeply connected to how we become more authentic versions of ourselves. I love story. And I was I was kind of struck in a way by something subtle that was in your book, which was the amount of times you noted that as you were interviewing every member of your family who were recounting their own stories of essentially the same situation, and then you recounted your own, you over and over again said, I could be wrong. And there was something so powerful about allowing your own fallibility while you're also exposing that five different people are five different narrators of the same story. <laughs> um, and I'm just curious, like, was that obvious to you that that would happen when you started this this project? Was it obvious that there would be different things that came out that you had no idea about and that you could even doubt yourself in what you remembered? Um, what I tried to do with this book is not simply to recount my story of growing up in this family, but to aspire, at least, to recount this family story, to come up with one cohesive narrative that somehow represented everybody's thoughts and opinions. And Leah, now it sounds kind of small to say this or simplistic, but I thought that was possible. And of course that's not possible because we all grew up with five different perspectives and points of view on the world and five different sets of biases and five different personalities and at five different moments in the same family. And what I set out to do, the way that I set out to accomplish this, is I spent the first six months or so of this process just interviewing everybody in my family, these people that I thought that I knew really well, like I would interview journalistic sources, just open-ended questions, often questions that I figured that I knew the answer to, but I didn't know the answer at all. And what I learned when I asked an open-ended question and then truly shut up and just listened for an hour, two hours, is how many times I was actually wrong about things that I had taken for granted, had thought forever about one very small example of that is a road trip that I took with my sister. Now, I'm the oldest, and if you are an oldest child listening, you, you might have some ideas then about what that means about my personality, and you're right about all those ideas. <laughs> and my sister, she's a middle child, and we were very close, but also it was a fraught relationship, lots of turbulence, lots of fights, lots of both of us wanting to be right about things. And we planned this road trip, and... The night before this road trip across the country, I was about 24 and she was about 20, uh, we had this huge fight. I didn't remember what the fight was about. I didn't think it was important. And I wanted to tell the story of this road trip, so I get on the phone with my sister, Katya, and I ask her to tell me everything she remembers. And by the way, it was a great, it was great fun, this road trip. We just we really had a very good time. We learned a lot about each other. And I thought about all the things that we had done. We had visited my friend so-and-so. We had gone to this place I'd wanted to go. We had, like, climbed this mountain I wanted to climb. And then I asked her, do you remember what that fight was about? Like, I don't even remember it. You probably don't even remember it. And she was like, oh, no, I remember it. 
And it became clear to me that she had actually been holding the source of that anger for like the past two decades. Yeah, it was like burned in her brain. Yeah, she knew it. She knew right from the beginning we were having that fight. And the fight, of course, was over the fact that I had created the entire itinerary. I decided what we were going to do and where we were going to go and how we were going to do it. And by the way, it was a great trip and I knew it because I had decided it. And it was in that moment that I realized um, I had never actually let her express herself or share her opinion on the road trip, but then also otherwise. And that was a confusing thing to figure out how to let the reader see me change my perspective on that in real time, Hmm. which I tried to do. What struck me, and I wrote whoa in the book, was um, at the end of that chapter, as you close out this amazing road trip that you, you two have together, she says to you, it was a conversation in which I was asking myself, looking back now, would I be able to be in relationship with you and still be me? And yeah. that just really, that touched me when I think about authenticity, about how we become ourselves. So much of of what we do and what we don't do is because of expectations. And you recently said in writing the story, I shifted my own definition of what it means to come out of a closet. I'd thought of this only in relationship to my sexuality coming out as a gay woman. But the more I listened to my family members tell me their own stories, the more I began to understand that we are all born into a set of expectations about who we will become. We all must contend with the ways in which these expectations run counter to our most authentic selves. Coming out is the process of letting go of those expectations. Talk to me about that. I thought so much about what it means to come out, right? And coming out, there's a relational aspect to it. Um, That phrase you wrote about that my, my sister, her question, can I know you and also be me? In some ways, I think all people ask that of their family members constantly in little and big ways, that it's the animating question to family systems. How do I find my way to that? And there's something about what it means to come out that allows us to begin to answer that question. Coming out narrowly, like coming out of the closet, like waving the flag, like four out of the five of us like fully came out as LGBTQIA plus people. But when you think about it, Like, what that means is that we found a way to say, hey, you thought this thing was true about me, and you always treated me as if that was true, and I'm here to tell you definitively, that thing isn't true about me. I am not a straight woman. I do not want to marry a man. This other thing is more true about me right now, and that is that I am right now a queer woman and that I think about my life this way. But you can apply that so far beyond what it means to be queer, because I think for all of us, we are born into families who have dreams and ideas about who we will be, religious communities, perhaps, society, culture, like all of these narratives and ideas about who we hopefully will become. And I think if you really push people to question where their narrative and ideas come from, often At least in North America, they'll come back to this idea like, well, what I really want for my daughter is to be happy, right? But here's how I think about happiness based on how I was raised and what I know about the I know what will make her happy. (laughs) Control. Yeah. I know what will make my little sister happy. Mm -hmm. Um, And the beauty in coming out is that moment where you say definitively, "No, no, those things, they don't fit me. This identity fits me more. And by the way, I also have come to realize that coming out is not a static thing. It's not that moment in the backseat of the car where you say, Mom, Dad, I think I might be, I could be, a little lesbian. It's not that moment, right? Coming out is a process of living. It's the way you live your life. And at just the moment where you think you've stumbled upon it and you're like, no, this is who I am, you find new things about yourself, new ways to express yourself that cause you to continue to be in conversation with yourself and others about who you are becoming. And that, I think, is what it means to live authentically. Wow. So a process of living. I haven't heard it said that way, and I, I really appreciate that. Um, as you're talking about coming out and, you know, the story, like you said, is about four of your family members fully coming out, your brother Evan coming out as trans, and the story of him and his children was incredible. I mean, everyone's story as you close the book and start to just reflect on the process your family had to go through to get to where you are, which, by the way, I loved. You didn't end it with, like, this is a happy ending. We put a bow on it. We're still in process. Um, 
But one thing I did note was two of the moments you share about coming out was first your moment, which is you in the back of a car telling your parents, I'm pretty sure I'm gay. And your mom starts to cry. Your dad just stares ahead and continues driving and later tells you, you know, he thought he was once gay as well. And you said, well, what'd you do? And he said, I married your mom. Um, and then the point when Evan calls you and comes out as trans, it was the way you wrote it was like fast, almost uneventful in the moment that it happened. And even as you describe it, it sounds simple. And yet, of course, we know these moments aren't simple. So for people who might be listening today who are feeling like they do have a process or an area in their life, whatever it is, in which they need to come out, what does it take for us to do that? That is the best question. First of all, it takes such a high degree of self-compassion not everybody should come out. Not everybody can come out about whatever it is that you need to come out about. And sometimes coming out is is a slow process, right? Um, you referenced those two moments. Um, one moment in which I am telling, hey, guys, I think I might be I was, uh, gay, <laughs> right? And that's that's sort of how it sounded in the moment. Like, it was still a bit of a whisper. Like, the process of telling was also me asking, like, what happens if I say this? But then you you pair that with the moment where my brother comes out to me and I'm on the other side of the table and I'm listening. And what I remember most about that moment is that my first reaction to that, I didn't even write this as clearly in the book as I'm about to say it. My first reaction to that was, no. It was, and I didn't say it out loud uh. this way, but it certainly did it in my head. It was to immediately minimize that, to think back over the last six interactions I had had with my brother one of which, and I wrote about it in the book, one of which he was wearing a dress and had curled his hair for the holiday. And to think, oh, no, I'm more right about your identity than you are. I can't tolerate the question, right? Um, and, you know, you cannot talk about coming out without talking about both sides of the coin, about what it means to speak your truth and finally to feel like you are heard and also what it means to listen to other people's truths and own how complicated it feels when their truths collide with your own truths and they feel like they're at odds with each other. It's a complicated situation and one that we, with our closest people in particular, we live through every day. Mm -hmm. The process of telling was also the process of asking. I, you, you made me think about my own uh, a few years ago, I started saying, I'm coming out spiritually. And it was because I had for so long pushed that away. I didn't know how to share it with others. You know, you and I both live in New York City where kind of anything goes. But depending on your group, some people are kind of open to it. Other people might shy away, depending upon their own experience of it. And so I felt for a long time, and sometimes even now, like I'm asking, not telling, but I know and I'll say as a side point, I was like meditating in the audio room over here. I was like, if someone walked in, would I lose it? Would I free? What would I say? <laughs> like I'm in the dark on the floor humming to my chakra meditation. But it was the first time I, I've done that in a while. And I really felt like I, I wouldn't care. But this was a process and it continues to be a process as new people come into your life. Even for someone like Evan, who's been through this transition and Evan is met now as Evan, even though prior we knew Evan as someone else, everybody's in process as we meet new people. We're constantly sort of asking for, is it permission? Is it belonging? Is it love? Like, what is it you think we're asking? Leah, I'll answer that with a question to you. So some years ago, you started coming out as a spiritual person What's different about the way that you talk about it right now? Somebody walks into the room, they see you on the floor. What happens for you in that moment? I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm in here. <laughs> I'm in here with Deepak Chopra playing in the background, taking care of business. What are you doing? <laughs> That's, I mean, it's it's calmer. Yeah. Um, it, as you said, because this is a process of living, I'm much more comfortable in it. Right. And so it was secret for a while. It was like, should I tell this person or should I not tell this person? Like, will they get it or won't they get it? And now it's more, uh, I am absolutely not where I want to be, right. um, but it's more of a, yeah, this is what I do. Well, it's funny about secrets and things that begin as secrets and then you you become more confident about sharing them. Um 
My guess is that you still have that moment when somebody walks into the room before you're before you just own what's going on. Uh, and it might even be a micro moment, but you still have that moment where you blush, where you think, oh, hey. It's happened. Oh, okay. Right? And I think that it's that way about coming out. I mean, I have been out of the closet now. I like to call myself the boring gay in the family. You know, I'm cisgender. I am a gay woman that has been fairly uncomplicated for me. I'm very happily partnered. I live in a place where I feel like I'm accepted by my community And still there are audiences of people or contexts in which I'm just a bit shy about Mm -hmm. leading with that still, right? Shy is different than not accepting yourself. Completely. Yeah. Completely. I would would agree. I'd say there would be a micro moment and I would be shy and I may have a moment of like, oh, gosh, I hope they still accept me. But at this point, a few years out, I'm like, if they don't. Yeah, we'll be okay. I'm not changed by it. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, more with your Hello Monday host, Jesse Hempel. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. And we're back. I'm Leah Smart, host of In the Arena and guest host of this episode of the Hello Monday podcast. And I'm joined today by the one and only Jesse Hempel. Hello. So we are deep in conversation about Jessie's experience coming out and her brand new memoir, The Family Outing, which was fantastic. So let's jump back in. I want to talk about you because I know you don't get on the other side of the mic often. Um, And specifically, there is this really beautiful moment towards the end of the book where you talk about Francis um, and meeting Francis. And you, you had this moment with Francis where... You had essentially decided that for any number of reasons, it was time for you to break up. And you explained to her why it had to happen. (laughs) Uh, And you know I'm obsessed with the Enneagram, and I I knew Francis was a nine as soon as you said this. But you said, for all these reasons, and you can explain them in a second, it's time for us to to be done. And she looks at you and she says... You go like this. This is me doing like a big wave. And she's like, I go like this. And it's sort of like a slow climbing, like a slow grade. And she said, if you stick with me, you're going to have something interesting happen, I think was the essence of it. Talk to me about you and talk to me about Francis. That was such a powerful moment in the book. And I don't even know if you realized it, but it was a really beautiful way to think about uh, partnership, relationship, and how we support and understand each other when we're different. Relationships and partnerships are so mysterious, Leah, and why they work and why they don't work is sort of life's work. But often a lot of what we learn about what love feels like and what it's supposed to feel like is what is modeled for us in our youngest years. And if you grew up as I did um, in a family where adults were working really hard to keep secrets, my dad about his sexuality, my mother about some crimes to which she had been adjacent witness in her youth— The product of that in my family was that my parents, by the time I was an adolescent, they were very distant from each other. They were both very, very unhappy, and their unhappiness felt contagious. And to be a kid in that family, you didn't even know what was wrong, but you knew something was wrong. And my mom was very, very hot and cold. She would go through depressive episodes, and then she would turn up and be very angry about something, but her anger would be displaced and it would come out toward us. And uh, it was a lot of that line you drew that goes up and down and up and down and up and down. And it didn't feel great or bad. It just felt like, I guess that's what love feels like. And so I came out of the closet, but I still continued to look for that feeling when I partnered And I had lots of girlfriends. Leah, I had lots of great girlfriends. Like, I look back at the people that I dated, and 
they are lovely, lovely people. Many of them I, I get to still know and have in my life. But they were often at the moment in their lives where they were in similar turbulent places. And they were never great relationships. Hmm. I was like a queen of the three-month crash and burn. <laughs> and I didn't know why they weren't working. I just got to a point in my mid-30s where I thought, well, look, um, I have a bigger life than my romantic relationships. And I'm really happy with that life. And I am just going to resign myself to the fact that I don't seem to be getting this one. Mm -hmm. uh, so then I meet Frances and we're set up and I go out with her and Leah, my wife, she's so awesome. Mm. And uh, I was not the popular kid in high school, which is a surprise to absolutely no one. <laughs> Um, I was the opposite of that. And I was, you know, like, my, my family always says don't peak in high school. So, well, it's a good sign. You peak you know, now. <laughs> uh, I, I own that. And I was not hugely socially accepted by my peers as a closeted gay girl who didn't know what the heck was going on. So I meet Francis and Francis is easy in her skin and easy in her body. We're set up on a first date. We go to the Modern Museum of Art and she's super pretty and I see her and I'm like, well, this is not going to work. We're not the same kind of people, but it'll be fun to spend the afternoon with her. And we do uh, have a wonderful first date and lo and behold, she wants to continue to hang out and I'm like, sure. And we continue to hang out. And I am continually bowled over by her. She is the most compassionate person I have met. But I I still think, like, it is mysterious to me that somebody like this would want to spend all this time with me. But this does not feel like what relationships feel like to me. So I must not be in love with her. I don't have moments of, like, panic that I will lose her. I just kind of trust that she'll be there. I don't have moments of, like, extreme infatuation. I just consistently like her. And maybe four or five months in, I decide, well, this must mean that we're not in love. What else could it mean? It must mean we're not in love. But I happen to believe that Frances is the most amazing person. And so the kindest thing I can do is just break up with her right away so that she can go out and find love because that lady deserves to find love because she is amazing. And that is where I was in the moment that I basically found the courage to break up with her in my mind to set her free so that she could find somebody who did a better job at loving her than I was, I was doing. And that was when she set me straight and said, oh, no, 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 you're just pattern matching to totally the wrong pattern. And I never even thought to break up with her again because it just made so much intellectual sense. I The pattern matching, we don't have to get too deep into that, but um, wow, that is so real. Um, you had a childhood where it was going up and down, up and down, up and down. And so I often find for a lot of us, we draw in in relationships at work. I mean, in all areas of our life, we draw in situations that then reflect the patterns we had. And we look at those patterns and we go, this is comfort. This yes. is home. Yes. And then we see something different or feel something different and go, this is wrong. But in reality, if we step back, we go, no, that is the thing, the pattern that will keep me in this painful experience. This is the opportunity to make the shift. Um, and I think oftentimes when you're somebody who has the experience of pattern matching, when we are matching to patterns that are unhealthy, it's hard for us to envision that somebody who is quote unquote healthy, I want to use a healthy and unhealthy as uh, loosely, yeah. Um, when we are thinking about drawing in someone that's quote unquote healthy, we almost believe that we don't deserve it in some way, somewhere in ourselves. And so I'm wondering, like, did you ever find out what did Francis see? I mean, I know you're amazing, but what did Francis <laughs> see in you that in that moment you didn't see in yourself? I mean, I think that Francis recognized that she was having fun in our relationship, too. And I think we did a great job of listening to each other. Um, but maybe, uh, now I can say this more certainly, I think it is also true that Francis grew up in a very consistent family where that was perhaps something that she was used to and comfortable seeing. And, you know, she had her own issues in her, ho her own family. Her family wasn't perfect, but her patterns were different than mine. And I think perhaps modeled in a more sustainable way for a lot of her childhood and, and I want to add something to that, Leah, which is if you are lucky enough to name the patterns that aren't serving you, which in and of itself may take a lot of your life, and then if you are then lucky enough to figure out how to make another choice, that's not a choice you make once. And it is 
it has always felt really clear to me that being in relationship with Francis is a wonderful thing. But it's not easy still, because still I am set to look for the conflict. Mm -hmm. And so we have very different love languages. And it took us years and therapy, and I'm such a proponent of therapy. Oh, me too. um, To figure out that often when I was feeling disconnected and unloved, what I was looking for is just to have a big fight Mm -hmm. so that I could have the moment of intensity so that I could feel a thing I was familiar with. Whereas when Francis lives in our relationship and in our lives. She doesn't need those moments of intense, like intense intensity. Jarring emotions. No, she like when we're gardening together side by side, which never happens because I'm not very good at doing anything as like quiet and meditative as gardening. You're like when I'm standing there waiting for her to be done. (laughs) (laughs) That is what it means for her to feel at home in our relationship. Wow. And that's modeling something that's really powerful for you. So in in many ways, she is, I'm sure, a teacher for you. And I'm sure you for her. I mean, all of our best relationships work that way. That's right. And then hopefully us for our children. That's right. I'm curious, as you think about stories, I noticed two points that stuck out to me um, that were the places where people in your family wanted the stories to be different than they were. And so when you think about the, you know, writing out your own story or discovering your own story, the process of coming out, uh, it's not linear. And you start and then you go, am I doing the right thing? And then you go a little further and then maybe go even further and then you go snap all the way back. And the two moments in the book, uh, one which made me laugh out loud was uh, every year, Lucky the dog, your family dog, wrote a Christmas letter. And they were written by your dad. And they talked about what was happening and what the family was doing. And the year for your family, you know, when over time things were happening, but the year that kind of all hell broke loose, Lucky is still trying to like cleverly say that the family is like doing pretty good, just thinking about living life in different ways. There's some big changes and it's been an eventful year. And the second one was when your dad finally does come out and your parents are living in the same house and your dad is dating someone named Steve and he has a photo of Steve in uh, the room that he's staying in. Your mom goes in, sees the photo, is like, when the heck does he go on hikes? Cuts out a picture of herself and puts her face over his boyfriend's photo in that in that moment. And then she she kind of turned it into a joke. She's like, you can't take a joke. What do you think happens in this process of trying to get ourselves to where we want to go, where we can really understand and own our stories? And how do we keep ourselves going in those moments where we're like, I just want it to go back to the quote unquote normalcy that I had before? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think when big changes afoot and you're going to have a full on identity shift Even if the outcome of that is freedom, even if it's amazing for you, the process of that means letting go of the identity to which you have hung on for a good long time. And that is so challenging to do. And so I look at that letter that the dog sent every year. Jessie is having great fun playing her French horn and Katya's riding horses and Evan started ballet this year, right? And so then you get this year where my... Dad gets caught in a web of infidelity and my parents are totally meltdown and my mother has a depression crisis and my brother gets left at camp over the summer and everybody starts therapy and my parents are having this artificially like constructed vacations to try to rediscover their connection and Lucky's just like, oh, you know, big year here. Um, And what that really is, is my parents saying, okay, everything is totally different, but nothing has to be different. And that's what we really want at first when we're in the process of coming out. Yeah, it took them a long time to even decide they're getting divorced or moving out, right? I mean, I thought it took them forever. In retrospect, though, is three years a long time? I wrote that down. You said, I don't know. In the moment, it felt interminable. Mm -hmm. It felt like I couldn't imagine a different future. Mm -hmm. But that is also a thing about change. You know, when my father needed to decide what to do about his marriage and he was, it was his 50th birthday, all hell had just broken loose. He had been caught by my sister having an affair, um, caught sort of his computer messages came out. My mom had just discovered this. Everything he thought about when he thought about his life was suddenly in question. And he drove to visit his sister who was six years older. And his sister sat with him on the back porch and said to him, 
you're going to be sitting on this back porch in 20 years, retired, hopefully, like living out your glory days. When you're sitting on this porch, just think about who's sitting next to you. Is it a man or is it a woman? And use that to guide your actions now. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was actually a really helpful tool. It's helpful for anybody. Like, okay, in this moment when everything is changing, sometimes that change happens often coming out, whether it's coming out around your sexuality or coming out in your case as a spiritual person. Often like the pain and confusion of what that might mean in the moment clouds our ability to actually act in a like thoughtful way. But if you jump forward to the vision you have for your life, it gets simpler. That was the moment that I felt the gravity of the choice to live your life as yourself. And it's something that a lot of motivational speakers do. They say, you know, when you're in your rocking chair, when you're at the end of your life, what is it that you refuse to not have done in your life? When we think about coming out in whatever way, do you think everybody has a desire to do something big that they're not doing or to make a huge change that would alter the course of their life forever? Or is this a little bit of grandeur and most people are feeling pretty good about what's going on? I mean, I can't speak for most people. I think that yeah, there's only two of us in here. I mean, yeah, you and me. But, you know, the, the beauty of the book is that I only try to speak very specifically about these people that I know mm -hmm. and that are closest to me. And I discover similarities in their experience. But one thing that is true for everybody in the book, myself included, is that often when you're thinking about coming out and what it means to live in the closet, the most work that you will ever need to do is coming out to yourself. But mostly when we're living in the closet, we don't know. We don't know what could be better in our lives. Before, Leah, you tripped into your your journey as a spiritual person. Did you know that you were missing it? No, but I knew something was wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think a lot of people feel like that. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people feel like there's there's a thing. There's a thing. I don't know what the thing is. Yeah. Or maybe I know a little bit about what the thing is. Or maybe I think I know, but I, I could be wrong about the mm -hmm. thing. But you know what? I'm 60% I'm happy. And 60% happy feels pretty good most of the time. Like, what is my motivation for chasing the thing? Mm -hmm. I think well, that's a pretty common experience. Interestingly, you know, and, and I don't know if the, how this relates back to your story, but in my experience, you and I both had grandfathers who were preachers. Mm -hmm. My grandfather was a Methodist minister. My grandmother is still alive, and she is um, she's Christian. And, you know, I grew up in a Christian household. And so um, I sort of did what a lot of probably millennial kids did, you know, like, and a lot of kids do in general. You start in that world and then you stray, you start asking questions, you maybe push it away. And so the thing I ended up coming back to is the place where I started. <laughs> and that made it even harder to really accept that I was coming back to it in some ways. It was like, there's something wrong, but I can't pin it. And then once I came back to it, um, what I recognized was that it could still be in my life, but I had to redefine it. And for me, that was the process of coming out was the decision to say, where I started is not far off from where I ended up, but it's got my stamp and my signature on it instead of my parents, my families. I love that. I grew up very religious, um, also Baptized Methodist, Methodist ministers, my grandfather. Um, church was very important to my family growing up and was a huge part of the structure of my days and weeks. I left that when my family had its massive coming out, but remained spiritual and searching in many ways. And at some point in my early 20s, it's not in the book, but I, I went to India and I went to a two-week program with the Dalai Lama. And we had a moment where, uh, like, I got to ask a question. And I remember that my question was something along the lines of, I mean, I'm embarrassed to tell you because it's like the exact question that a 22-year-old kid from outside Boston would ask. Right? In India like, <laughs> with the Dalai yeah, Lama. Exactly. You know, should I be Buddhist? And the Dalai Lama, like, starts laughing. And he's like, what were you born and I was like, I am a Methodist. And he said, be that. And I was like, what? And he was like, yeah, just be that. 
And he, he then made some metaphor about the grocery store, and we, we think we can just go shopping through the aisles and just choose one and put it in our basket and go out. And, you know, if you've ever heard from or talked to the Dalai Lama, or, you know, he, he, sometimes he rambles and laughs in ways that feel kind of confusing. But, like, what it all comes back to is, like, you are asking the wrong question, kid. The, the focus is not on the definition. The focus is on the process. What does it mean for you to be in pursuit of truth? Mm-hmm. Call it Buddhism. Call it Methodists. Like, be in search of truth. Be in search of truth. Finishing this book, you closing it up, you now holding the hard copy. What do you know is true now? And and I think of this as, you know, for someone who's writing a memoir, does anything change later? Like, do you expect there to be a truth that comes out in three years? It's like, oh, the family outing is now, you know, debunked. Time to write a family outing part two. Um, Wouldn't that be funny if I just realized (laughs) in the next five years that I was wrong about everything I wrote? The beauty of this book is that it happened mostly during the pandemic, which was a very quiet time in my life. I couldn't write it again in this way. Um, But... No. I mean, these are the things I've figured out along the way as I've tried to figure out what it means to be human. That's really what this book is. And I presume I will continue to figure out more things. And I found a joy in writing about it that I never expected. But it also, this book feels done to me. Hmm. If I were to sit down and write the same book with the same title today, two years after our conversation about me starting it, probably be a different book. Mm -hmm. This chapter is complete. Yes. I saw you a few days ago, and I told you I love the book, and you said to me, you said, honestly, I I think I channeled this. And I was like, yeah, you you clearly did. Was this book cathartic for you? I ask this because I'm curious when um, there's only a couple books that I've closed in my life and gone, wow, 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 or gone, yep, um, and you wrote it, so you probably won't have the same experience. But when you finished writing it, what was clear for you about your search for truth? That I had permission to be in it. That when you come out in front of your closest family and strangers and that weird middle tier of people you know, but not quite well enough that you would ever in person tell them all the things that you're about to tell them in a book. But you get their lucky the dog Christmas card. Yep. <laughs> That you somehow have given yourself permission to be in pursuit. Um, and it is a weird thing. You know, my wife is reading the book right now. God bless her. She she read the chapters as I went. But she read them, of course, all out of order, had lots of feedback, like kept up on everything, um, but then hadn't had the experience of just starting at the beginning and reading the book. And so every night when we go to bed, I look over and there she is <laughs> reading the book. And um, it's the strangest feeling. It is the strangest feeling to watch her absorb the narrative of our shared life together. And uh, at least so far, she feels like it's mostly right as far as she can remember. So there's that. You did a beautiful job of holding everybody's narratives. And again, as we started, allowing fallibility in your own narrative so that there's space for other truths to emerge. You have permission to be in it. Others have permission to also be in it. And the truth changes because we are often unreliable narrators, as they say. We are. We are. And, you know, there's a whole generation of kids coming. I'm glad this book came right now because they're really little. Mm -hmm. Right. They are. um, There are six grandkids between me and my two siblings. They are ages six, five, three, two, two and one. And they will have their own ideas about how you live life. And it's my greatest hope, honestly, that we evolve so much as humanity that they read this in 20 years and think of me as Mm small-minded. Think, oh, how little she understood about what it means to live authentically. Now we understand so much more. For anyone who picks this book up today or have someone buy it for them um, with an inkling that they could use it for whatever reason, what do you hope for those people who read and hear your book? I hope they see their own experience somehow reflected in it and that it becomes a proof point for the fact that when you do the work of self-exploration, there is freedom on the other side of it, that there's joy that you cannot expect, but you can trust that it is ahead. 
I love that. I grabbed this quote, I believe this is also from your book, that says, after things fall apart, there's freedom. All of the expectations that have constrained us have been demolished. And there was something else that you said that I think is really apt for your book, for the fact that you're about to go out into the world and share this um, so bravely and that your family has said, yes, you can take our stories and you have you've written our stories in a way that we're okay with you putting them out into the world. Um, which is that you said you can be good to others without betraying yourself. And I think that honestly was one of the most salient points for me, because as we go through this process of coming out, we play a vital role in everyone else's experience of coming out too. And what you shared earlier about being in process and asking the questions is that we can't give what we don't have. And so if we haven't accepted parts of who we are, we have all had this experience. We are really hard on people who haven't accepted parts of who they are, too. And so that, to me, was one of the most powerful things, is to be able to sit and say, I've gone through the process of understanding myself, of coming out to myself, of coming out to others, of being good to them in that process, of receiving their good, and now I'm complete. That's the hope right there. You say it better than I did. <laughs> <laughs> tomato, tomato, Jesse. But that, Leah, and that is, I mean, that is that is why I wanted to have this conversation with you about this book, because it, I think, is so front and center in your work. This idea that um, to heal the world, we have to heal ourselves. To be good to others and to build with others, we have to first be good to ourselves and find our broken spots and attend to them. That's the work. Mm-hmm. To look at our wounds. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And to have others witness our wounds, mm -hmm. which is the hardest part. All right, Jesse, I'm going to ask my final three questions. Better humans are? Better humans are continually engaged in the process of coming out and toward their most authentic self. Wow. Did you memorize that before? I just <laughs> I can't. It channeled. <laughs> Better work is... Better work is work that reflects my values and that I feel like I'm contributing um, broadly to others as I do. And a better world has. People who believe that repair is possible and that we can always be moving toward each other. Wow. That was Jesse Hempel, the host of this podcast. You can find her book, The Family Outing, wherever books are sold. And now it's time to join the community in conversation. What closet have you found yourself coming out of? What do you wonder about the process of coming out? Jesse and I will chat about it with you this Wednesday on Hello Monday Office Hours. You can find us on the LinkedIn news page at 3 p.m. Eastern. Or drop an email to hellomonday at linkedin.com and we'll send you the link. If you like this show, please follow and review it wherever you get your podcasts. And share it with a friend. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn News. Sarah Storm produces our show with mixing by Joe DeGiorgi. Florencia Iriando is head of original audio and video. Dave Pond is head of news production. Michaela Greer and Victoria Taylor accept us for all of who we are. Thanks to you both. Our music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. And I'm Leah Smart, the host of In the Arena, Loved being here with you, Jesse, and talking about the book. It was an honor to be interviewed by you. And folks, y'all know that I am Jesse Hempel. <laughs> we'll be back next Monday. Thanks for listening.